Welcome to this first ever podcast episode for TelioWorks. My name is Sean Canone, and we're going to be doing a Bible study in the Gospel of John. I'm really excited that you've chosen to join us and hope that you'll stick it out through the very end. We're going to be looking at this gospel in quite a bit of depth. Now, if you don't know what a gospel is, there are four gospels in the Bible, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of those four, John is typically recommended as a great starting point. If you're very new to the Bible or haven't really been exposed much to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a great place for you to kind of dive in. And many of the stories are fairly simple and straightforward and easy to understand and gives us a very clear picture of who Jesus is. But then, as Spurgeon says, it's not only shallow enough for a child to wade in, but it's deep enough to drown an elephant. And so, uh, while I don't want to drown us, we are going to be looking at this gospel in quite a bit of depth and getting down below the surface. It actually is a very complex book in the way it's written. It's simple and straightforward, but very deep. Now, I know that everyone who's listening falls on a spectrum with regard to the Gospel of John. On one end of the spectrum, it might be that you've never heard of the Gospel of John, uh, or at least never studied it or taken the time to understand what it says. On the other end of the spectrum, some of you have not only studied it, but you've taught it in the past. And so, regardless of where you are on that continuum, my prayer is that you'd be encouraged by the study, that you'd see the Lord Jesus Christ clearly, and that your faith would be made real and deep. So let's dive right into the study by reading, and I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. This is a literal word-for-word translation of the original New Testament Greek, so I think it's a, a great translation for us to use as we study. And what I want to read is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Now, the reason that we're going to read these first 18 verses together is because they form what's called the prologue. The way that John wrote his gospel is he wrote a, an introduction of these 18 verses that kind of encapsulates the entire story of his gospel and condenses it down into 18 verses. So let's read these 18, and then we're going to kind of dive in. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, 
This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So that is John's prologue, verses 1 through 18. And today we're going to focus only on the first part of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, if you've read or studied a Bible at all in your life, you probably recognize those first three words, in the beginning, because those are the first three words of the Bible from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And so for any Jewish mind who's hearing John write his gospel account, they would immediately sense that he's going back to a time in eternity past to describe the origins of Jesus Christ. This is different than the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who choose to pick up the story of Jesus at the time of his birth or the time of his public ministry. But here we have a hearkening back to eternity past for the origins of Jesus Christ. Now, before we get too much further, it'll be helpful for us to know three A's. The first A is the audience. Who is this gospel account being written to? Secondly, author. Who's the one writing this gospel account? Are they a trustworthy source? And three, the aim of the writer. What is the purpose for writing this book? What is he trying to accomplish in the writing of this gospel account? Now, to establish the idea of the audience to whom this book is being written, I decided to put together a little fictional narrative that'll maybe just paint a mental picture for you of the time period in which this is being written and the kind of person or people who might have encountered this gospel in the first century. The story is of three fictional men. I'm going to name one of these men Tacitus, one Simeon, and one Jonathan. I'd like to first introduce you to the man named Tacitus. Tacitus means silent or quiet. And as you'll see in our story, Tacitus thinks very deeply, but he speaks only once. The year was 87 AD, and Tacitus was a sailor, a merchant marine, a quiet man who lived in Athens, Greece. He frequently sailed across the Aegean Sea, an outcropping of the Mediterranean Sea lying between Greece and Macedonia, or Asia, now known as Turkey. On this voyage, Tacitus and his shipmates would be covering the nearly 600 treacherous miles of sea and traveling due east to the city of Ephesus. Tacitus left behind his wife and six-year-old daughter in Athens. His daughter had been born blind, and although Tacitus deeply desired to have a son, they had been unable to conceive another child. It's a calm night at sea, and Tacitus looks up into the heavens. He feels deeply unsettled for some reason, and the stars that have so often helped to navigate him on his journeys at sea now appear cold and distant. They remind him of the Greco-Roman gods he worships. But they seem so distant, uncaring, impersonal, and self-absorbed. There is no compassion or wisdom coming from them on this night or any other, only the ongoing uncertainty of being a pawn in their celestial games. 
As he looks into the night sky, he sees clearly the belt of Orion, three stars shining brightly in a row. Surrounding this belt, the remainder of Orion the hunter quickly comes into view, and he recalls a story he heard many times as a child. It's the story of the greatest deity in his world, Artemis, or Diana, the goddess of nature and of sailors. It was said that Artemis had fought and killed Orion and banished him into the night sky. Artemis was powerful, and on this voyage he looked to her to keep him safe in his journey, to grant him success in his work life, to heal his daughter's blindness, and to give him the long-awaited son that he so desired. You see, Artemis was also the goddess of fertility, and she was thought to perform miracles like healing the sick and the blind. Ephesus was known as the Light of Asia, and Tacitus had long anticipated this voyage because he would again seek the favor of Artemis, paying her tribute and worshiping her to the fullest extent. But there was a deep ache inside. Something was missing, and something seemed to be burning inside of Tacitus that he had not felt before. As he considered the power of Artemis, growing doubt remained. Why would Artemis take an interest in him and his situation? What would make this time any different than any other in the past? There had been nothing but empty years of pleading with the gods, and as he stared into the night, he began to wonder about life and its meaning, the origin of the stars, or the gods for that matter. As they approached the deep water port at Ephesus, he wondered about the Lagos. What was it? This power behind all things in the universe, the purpose or wisdom behind all things, the explanation for how deity came into relation with the universe. The long-awaited message that would bring a common good to the world. He had been taught that Aristotle viewed this Lagos as the power that lies behind the difference between mankind and animals, giving mankind their ability to perceive, express, and determine right from wrong, good from evil, justice from injustice. He also remembered that Heraclitus, another famous Greek philosopher, had taught the view that all things come into being by the Lagos, that the Lagos was the source of ultimate truth, but that humans cannot understand or grasp this truth. It was a cosmic law and wisdom that was lost to humanity like a dream that had been forgotten. His Greek ancestors had put so much thought into the meaning of life, but it left so many questions for a man like Tacitus. He feared he would never be able to remember that forgotten dream that Heraclitus had spoken of, that he would never know truth and meaning. He was caught up in a worldview that was unable to satisfy the burning unsettledness that lie deep within his person, but there was no time to consider these things further. Their arrival in Ephesus was imminent. Ephesus. What an amazing city, the jewel of the Roman Empire, only rivaled by Alexandria in Egypt, Antioch in Syria, and of course Rome itself. Ephesus was a modern and beautiful city, the gateway to the Eastern Roman Empire, a place where cultures met and trade abounded. Ephesus was known as the financial and banking center of the world, it was also known for its incredible Roman aqueduct system that carried fresh water throughout the city and surrounding areas. Then there was the Library of Celsus, a worldwide center of learning and knowledge. If you wanted entertainment, the amphitheater in Ephesus was a stadium seating nearly 25,000 people. 
The town was a bustling center of trade, tourism, commerce, and wealth. And at the heart of everything was the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The entire economy of Ephesus was dependent on the Temple of Artemis. Thinking of the stadium in Ephesus and the Temple of Artemis, Tacitus recalled a story of a Jewish man named Paul, who had come to Ephesus on several occasions nearly 40 years earlier and created a riot when a silversmith named Demetrius and all who were involved in the making of Artemis statues and idols was essentially put out of business overnight. Paul had said that gods made with hands are not gods, and that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. This disrupted the city so much that they dragged Paul and his friends into the amphitheater where the massive crowd sought to kill them, chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians in unison for hours on end. Tacitus came to the temple area and began to drink wine, celebrating the fertility of Artemis. He paid his homage, and then against the rising voice from within, went into a temple chamber with a temple prostitute to perform an act of worship to his goddess, and in hope that she might show some bit of indifferent kindness to him by this act and bless he and his wife with a son. As he left the temple grounds, he was in a stupor. The wine had left its impression, but his inner turmoil and confusion had now risen to a crescendo. He felt as if he had done wrong and wondered if he had encountered the Lagos. It gives the wisdom of good and evil. A little more wine would deaden the senses and remove his cares, but he had wandered into the wrong area of town and was easily overtaken. Soon he lay motionless on the road. Everything was gone, and a pool of blood began to form around his head. He was helpless, half dead, and as he faded, he thought only of his lovely wife and daughter. In a similar area of town, a man named Simeon, whose name means God has heard, is kneeling beside the bed of his young son and daughter while his wife sits resting in the common room after a long day of serving her family and caring for others. Simeon and his family are Jews, living in dispersion like nearly four million others scattered across the Roman Empire. Life is difficult in this pagan land, but Simeon, like every good Jew, never ceases to dream of the day of the long-awaited Messiah a day when Israel's sovereignty and glory would be restored. How he wishes that he could make the pilgrimage to Israel for the great festivals of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles with his children, as he once did with his father. But there was little hope of that happening again in his lifetime, or his children's. The once glorious temple and city of Jerusalem had been utterly obliterated by the Roman Empire in 70 A.D., after another failed Jewish insurrection. It was said of the temple that not one stone was left upon another. How would Messiah come to establish his everlasting kingdom without a city? How would the Jews make atonement for sin and be right with God without a temple and without its system of sacrifice? When would there ever be a restoration of the joy of the people of Israel regathered and living in the presence of their God? How would his people keep the festivals and worship God? How would there be a blessing for the nations as promised to Abraham 
without a Messiah. Now, with much uncertainty and hopelessness building within, Simeon led his children in the reciting of the bedtime Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. He recounted again from the same passage of Scripture the history of God's deliverance, the rescue of his people from the hand of Pharaoh through Moses, the very person who wrote the words of the Shema. God was with Moses, he tells his children, and he did amazing miracles through Moses in the sight of all Israel. And then Moses brought us the law of God. He continued, Although Moses was running in fear and unfit for leadership, God found him in the wilderness and changed his life. The children questioned, How did God change his life? And their father knew immediately that there were two things that made all the difference to Moses, as they rightly would in any man's life. First, the Lord walked in personal relationship with Moses and even revealed to Moses the name of God, Yahweh, the Lord. I am. And secondly, he showed Moses his glory, although only a small portion of it, otherwise he would have been undone. If you and I heard the Lord speak his beautiful name to us, and if we saw just one little bit of his glory, we would be changed forever as well, if we weren't completely undone. What does his name, I am, mean, Daddy? the children asked. His response, it means that God has always been and will always be and will always be with us, never forsaking but always having compassion and love on whomever he wishes. Was there ever a time when God wasn't, they ponder? No, their father replies, he was there in the beginning. As the children lie in bed, They look out their window at the stars in the night sky and they are reminded of their favorite story and plead with their father, tell us the story of the beginning again. He smiles and concedes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Wait, Daddy, the children interrupt. What is the Spirit of God? Simeon replied, Well, the Lord our God is one, but He is and has a spirit. Does He have a body like us? They asked. No, God is spirit, and no man has ever seen God. He replied, and then after a slight pause, he continued, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars. Wait, Daddy, the children interrupted again as they stared up at three particularly bright stars lined up horizontally in the night sky. How did God and his spirit actually make the stars? The father replied, Well, you see, God created all things by His Word. He spoke, and out of nothing came everything. The very first thing that He spoke was, Let there be light. Isn't it amazing that God speaks? 
we would know nothing of God if he did not speak. All of his scripture was spoken by him through his prophets. The Greeks speak of Lagos, and for us, the true Lagos comes from the mouth of God. It's the full expression of who he is. The Lagos is truth, and within it is carried the very power and nature of God. The Lagos speaks light into existence, and light is of the very nature of God. It speaks life into existence, and within the Lagos is that very light and life. The Lord our God is one, but it is by His word that His will is fulfilled, and it is by His word that He makes Himself known. And the Lagos was with God in the beginning, and there was no beginning without the Lagos. Before he could complete his reciting of the first chapter of Genesis, he had to pause as he read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. He looked down at his young son and daughter with tears coming to his eyes, hoping that God had a plan for his life and his family. That he would be with them always and show them compassion. But how could he ever be right with his God? How would he make sacrifice for his sin without a temple? Would he or his family ever see the glory of God in his kingdom? All things made right? There was only the law now, and he tried so hard to keep it, hoping that God would be pleased. In fact, this day he had remembered the commands of God through Moses in Leviticus, You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and had rescued a half-dead man from the streets of Ephesus. He and his wife had cleaned and bandaged the man as their children looked on, and now this man lay sleeping peacefully in the next room. A Gentile, unclean, but a neighbor nonetheless. Simeon prayed that God would see the good that he had done and show favor toward his servant and on his entire family as they made their way in this pagan land of exile. They tried their best to keep the law. Externally, they looked very good, especially in comparison to the pagan Gentiles around them, but internally they were acutely aware of their inability to keep the law with all their mind, soul, heart, and strength. So in a peculiar way, The law only seemed to remind Simeon of his failings, and it made him feel further and further from God. As he slipped away into sleep that night, Simeon wondered aloud with his wife of when Messiah might finally come and make things right. Where was God? It had been nearly 500 years since God had spoken to Israel, unless you count that time 60 years ago when his grandfather had gone out to a man named John who preached a baptism of repentance in the wilderness, but he was apparently not the long-awaited prophet who had announced the coming of Messiah. The one he heralded, the one they called Jesus of Nazareth, had obviously created quite a stir in that generation, but his bloody and humiliating death at the hands of the Romans seemed to confirm that he was not the Christ. Except for a small band of Jesus' followers, Israel had flatly rejected him and his claim to be the one who would usher in the long-awaited kingdom. Several mornings later, Jonathan, another Jewish man living in Ephesus, and whose name means gift of God, came to the home of his friend Simeon 
and was greeted warmly. He was carrying a basket of bread and fish and wine, and he had heard of Simeon's act of kindness toward the pagan stranger, and had come to help with his care and recovery. Simeon and his wife expressed their thanks, and Jonathan began to inquire as to the man's condition and progress this day, but to his surprise their attention was pleasantly diverted by the sudden appearance of this man as he entered from the back room. He walked slowly, with a slight limp, and although bandages still covered his head, his lips carried a small but authentic smile of gratitude as he considered all that his new friends had done for him. My name is Tacitus, the man volunteered, speaking for the very first time since he was taken into the care of Simeon. I come from Athens, and I owe my very life to you. You rescued me from the streets three nights ago. I was near death, beaten and bloodied and without hope. You have welcomed me into your home. You have fed me, clothed me, and nursed my wounds. For these things I am forever grateful, as will my wife and daughter be when they learn of your kindness toward me in my time of great need. The children watched as the men sat, talked, laughed, and ate together. The conversation then turned to Jonathan. Tacitus thanked him for the meal, and Simeon thanked him as well for his help and friendship. They expressed their desire to somehow repay him for this kindness, and when they had finished, Jonathan seized the opportunity for repayment and told them that there was one thing they could do that would satisfy this debt of friendship completely. Come and see, he begged. Come to my home this evening. Come and see. This seemed like a very strange but simple enough form of repayment, so Simeon and Tacitus both agreed, much to the delight of Jonathan. These two men, with completely different lives, different religions, different worldviews, made their way to the home of Jonathan that day, having no idea of what awaited them. Although very different, they both carried a common burden, a nagging sense of spiritual desperation deep in their souls. Though it didn't show on the outside, their hearts were unsettled. Their minds had been grappling with the massive questions of life and meaning. They both knew, in very different contexts, that the mysterious Lagos possessed this hidden wisdom and the ultimate answers to these questions. It was the power that not only held them in existence, but gave meaning to their existence. But on this day, the distant, unknowable, and untouchable Lagos was the furthest thing from their minds when they entered Jonathan's home. Once they had arrived, they were greeted by a small gathering of excited and joyous Ephesians. There were young and old, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, and yet there was something that bound them as closely as any family they had ever known. It wasn't long before they had found a place to sit and Jonathan welcomed them to this very special occasion. Today I'm very excited to announce that we have our dear brother John with us once again. He really needs no introduction for the many here that he has loved and taught to love over these many years together. You know that after much pleading, John finally agreed to write an account of his time with Jesus, a document that could be shared with generations to come, recounting his own first-hand experiences with our Lord, which took place some 60 years ago. I am now happy to report that not only is his gospel record complete, but that John, the beloved disciple himself, the last remaining apostle of our Lord Jesus, 
has agreed to bless us with its very first public reading. The aged apostle, who is now somewhere near ninety years of age, stepped forward with his scroll in hand. Both Simeon and Tacitus felt out of place and slightly offended at the scene in which they now found themselves, but as they studied the faces of those in the room and sensed the joy and contentment they possessed, they remained silent and still. The apostle emanated a palpable feeling of peace, warmth, and kindness as he studied those at the gathering with his loving eyes. Then he began to unfurl his scroll. Many in the room wondered how John might begin his story. Matthew and Luke's accounts of Jesus' life told of the birth and genealogy of Jesus. Mark's gospel had begun much later, when Jesus was making his ministry public. The uncomfortable visitors, Simeon and Tacitus, were expecting nothing of value, but at this point would remain courteous to their dear friend Jonathan, who had requested their presence at this gathering. After what seemed like an excessively long and uncomfortable silence, John's eyes, which had been gently closed, now opened, and they seemed lit with a flame that burned from within. He opened his mouth, speaking clearly and powerfully the first words of his gospel. In the beginning was the Lagos. Immediately, the hearts of Tacitus and Simeon leapt. They had been pulled into an epic tale, a story which had its beginning before time and space and creation itself. That the Lagos was there in the beginning was not a controversial statement to anyone in attendance. They all knew this to be true. But where would this story go? Could this man explain the Lagos? The ever-elusive, inexplicable, and seemingly impersonal Lagos? Could it be that this old man, John, might have the answers that they as common men had been seeking? Well, I wonder if you can see yourself in Tacitus or Simeon or Jonathan. They represent a stereotypical Gentile, Jew, and Christian in this first century context. But it helps us to understand the audience to whom John was writing immediately. And even today, the words of this gospel apply to Gentile, to Jew, and to Christian alike. So we've seen the audience, and we've been introduced to the author. Most scholars agree that the Apostle John was the author of this gospel, and it's interesting to note that John never mentions himself in this book by name. John, if you know, was one of the three closest friends, the inner circle, as it were, of Jesus' disciples, and to not be mentioned anywhere in the book by name raises some questions. There is a notation, though, to someone called the disciple whom Jesus loved. We find that the author is referring to himself throughout the book in this way. I think there are two main reasons for why he refers to himself this way. The first is that it's a very humble way of bringing yourself into the story. And when John sits as an older man, thinking about his identity and who he is in life, the one thing that comes to his mind more than any other is that he was loved by Jesus. Might we say the same? I believe the second reason why John uses this designation of the disciple whom Jesus loved 
for our benefit, for that of the hearer and the audience, that instead of being outside the action looking in, we can put ourselves right into his sandals, as it were, and experience the love of Jesus firsthand and to see his glory and magnificence with our own eyes through John's. There are six instances in the book where this phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is used. One, in talking about the author of this book, in John chapter 21, verse 24. Secondly, at the Last Supper, which is in chapter 13, verses 21 through 26. The third instance is actually at the cross, chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. The fourth is at the tomb, chapter 20, verses 2 through 9. Then there's fishing back in Galilee after the resurrection of Christ, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. And the last instance is near the end of the book, chapter 21, verse 20, where John again identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now you might be asking, what is John doing in Ephesus? Well, recall that Paul had planted this church about 40 years before, and that much of the New Testament writing is centered around this church in Ephesus, including Paul's letters to Timothy, Paul's letters to the Ephesian church itself, Paul wrote the first letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus, and then also there are many sections in the book of Acts that talk about the Ephesian church, and finally, John wrote the book of Revelation while exiled on the island of Patmos just off the coast of Ephesus. So a lot of things in church history revolve around this particular area of the world. Historically, it's said that John when he was given charge of Jesus' mother at the cross, which is recorded in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, that he brought Mary to Ephesus, and that is where he resided for the remainder of his life. Now, we've talked about the audience of the Gospel of John and the author of the Gospel of John. Let's talk about the aim of the Gospel of John, because John had a very specific thing in mind when he wrote his Gospel. Now, much like there's a prologue at the beginning of the book of John, there's an epilogue at the end, and we see this in John chapter 20, and this is where John's purpose in writing is made very clear. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's aim is evangelistic in nature, that we would see and hear and experience Christ and believe on him. But it's also a gospel that's written to strengthen the faith of those who have already seen Christ this way. It's to believe and to be believing. And as you can see from those verses, it's John's ultimate aim that we would have life in the name of Jesus. Now, some of us are like Tacitus in this fictitious story. We have a worldview that just doesn't settle our soul, a nagging sense that there's some greater power or purpose to life or a burning conscience that causes us to sense right and wrong, and we just can't explain it with the answers we receive in our secular world. There's a fear that the answers we've been given or come up with on our own will not help us in this life or the next. We blindly run from one God to the next trying to make sense of our lives. 
Some of us may be more like Simeon. Maybe you grew up in a religious home, you have a knowledge of God and of right and wrong, but feel as if there's no way you could ever be good enough to be right with that God, or that this God is more corporate than personal, or that religion is the path to God. Doing more good than bad and participating in certain types of spiritual activities that will hopefully keep you right with God. Ultimately, the belief is that only those who are most religious have any hope of being close to God. And some of us are more like Jonathan. We have found that our conscience, our sense of right and wrong, have led us to know that religion and religious law-keeping, doing more good than bad in life, does not settle the soul. Because we know ourselves inside. We know our hearts and our failings. We know our sin. We've met Jesus Christ and have found him to be the satisfying answer to this emptiness and discontent in our souls. He gives purpose to life and brings clarity and meaning and gives a certain hope of things to come. All Jonathans are meant to have three words on their lips at all times. Come and see. And that would be my encouragement to you today. No matter where you are, no matter how close or how distant you find yourself from God, that you would come and see, that you would join us on this journey, studying the Gospel of John, hear, see, and experience Jesus, believe on Him, and have life. In our next podcast episode, we'll be diving deeper into John's prologue, these first 18 verses of this wonderful Gospel. And until then, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at telioworks at gmail.com, and feel free to share this podcast link with anyone who you think might like to listen along.